As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome in to another week of the Athletic Baseball Show. It's Monday, so Kent Rosenthal is here to answer all of your questions on the mailbag. I'm Tim McMaster, serving up those questions. Please rate and review the pod on Apple wherever you listen. This is just week four of this podcast, so all those reviews, they really do help us out. Ken, how are you doing? Doing well, Tim. How are you? I am uh, doing good. It's another fun week of baseball for sure, of course. You were supposed to broadcast the Twins and the Angels on Saturday. That game postponed because of COVID-19, a positive test with the Twins, and then they were also postponed on Sunday. But there has been plenty of baseball. Uh, Jay Bruce officially putting away the glove and bat, retiring from the Yankees. Meanwhile, uh, his former team, the Yankees now, off to their worst start since 1997. Some other notes, Steven Strasburg on the injured list, uh, shoulder inflammation there. But I think the most exciting thing about this weekend has been, and I, I don't think there'll be any arguments here, the Dodgers and the Padres rivalry is for real. We're recording this during Sunday's game, so no result there. But Friday and Saturday, Ken, were electric. Absolutely, Tim. And Two things struck me. One was just the intensity of this series right through Sunday with Bauer and Snell. It was great. You don't often see teams go at it like this in April. And I'm not just talking about the bench clearing stuff Friday night and Kershaw and Profar jawing at each other Saturday. I'm talking about the pitch to pitch intensity of the series. The extremely high level of play that we saw from both teams. It was just exhilarating. And the entire country, it seemed like, at least the entire baseball world was tuned in watching and kind of watching in wonder. The Mookie Betts play on Saturday night to end the game was just something to behold. And then seeing Tatis come back, Fernando Tatis Jr., come back from his shoulder subluxation and play in this series. Now, I had an executive tell me he didn't think it was a good idea. An executive from another club thinking that, you know what, the intensity will be so high, Tatis might just get carried away with himself, but they're doing some different things with him. He's wearing a harness on that left shoulder for support. It's not restricting him, it's just support. He also is using a two-handed swing now, so he doesn't finish as violently. 
He's avoiding those matrix type slides, or at least that's the intent, avoiding stolen bases, at least for the most part. And listen, you can't slow a guy down that much. Not a guy who's athletic, fast twitch, and who plays as fast and hard as Tatis. But they are taking precautions. So far, so good. And he was just part of a star-studded, electrifying series. Yeah, he homered in his first game back on Friday. And man, you know, you talk about um, hangovers from World Series championships. <laughs> Not for the Dodgers so far. They are off to a fantastic start. Best start in baseball so far. All right, one other thing that went down this week in baseball um, was brought on by The Athletic. Of course, we are The Athletic Baseball Show. Um, a big story came out on Friday. Uh, Ken, you contributed to it. Katie Strang, Brittany Giroli also writing the story, uh, basically about the toxic environment inside the Mets organization. Going back for many years, uh, the story, as you would expect from Mets fans, was was struck with uh, some pushback. Really, basically, one of the big things, I guess, was timing. And I know you wanted to talk a little bit about that. I did, Tim. And I'll start off by just saying or talking about the story a little bit. It was a story, as you said, that included allegations of inappropriate behavior beyond what Katie and Britt already had reported on former Mets manager Mickey Calloway. And as you said, I contributed to the story and we published it at a time when that same Mets culture is under investigation by an outside law firm hired by the team's new owner, Steve Cohen. So it's relevant in that regard alone. And yet, judging from some of the comments in my mentions on Twitter, it seemed that certain people were confused, even disappointed, by the timing of the story. Those people essentially asked, why now? Why didn't you report on this when the Wilpons were still owners? The implication, at least the one I gathered, was that reporters, including myself, somehow knew what was happening but did not write it out of some kind of concern for protecting the Wilpons. Well, if you read my columns over the years, they did not reflect any great concern for protecting the Wilpons. I was critical of them for failing to spend in accordance with the size of the New York market, and I was hardly alone in that position. But one question that struck me that is fair about this is this. Why didn't reporters delve more deeply into the Mets culture after a woman who was the team's vice president of ticket sales, Lee Castergene, after she sued the club for discrimination in September 2014, making specific allegations against Jeff Wilpon? Okay, let's take this point by point. September 2014, The Athletic did not exist then. I was working for FoxSports.com and frankly, we did not have a staff capable of investigative reporting. Perhaps a New York newspaper could have pursued the matter more thoroughly, and perhaps one or more did. We don't know. But keep in mind, the times were different, too. The Me Too movement did not take off until 2017, three years later. And even now, with inappropriate behavior in the workplace, a much more common topic of discussion, Women and men in all industries are uncomfortable talking to reporters about such matters, even on condition of anonymity. For women in particular, the power dynamic is such that it often means they will incur great risk. Could be they're imperiling their careers, or it could be they're subjecting themselves to ridicule, to scorn, to harassment. In the case of the Mets, the reporting for our initial story on Callaway, the one detailing how he aggressively pursued at least five women in sports media, well, that story led us down other paths. One produced a story about Ryan Ellis, former minor league coach who was the subject of three complaints by women saying he made aggressive sexual comments to them 
and sent repeated suggestive text messages. And then there was the story Katie and Britt wrote on Friday, the product of more than two dozen interviews over the past several months. Katie Strang is a senior enterprise and investigative writer for The Athletic whose reporting on sexual abuse and harassment is unmatched in sports media. Britt Garoli is a national baseball writer who has built strong connections throughout the industry in more than a decade of covering the game. Both accomplished with this story the difficult and delicate task of gaining the trust of people who were willing to talk about the Mets culture. They did that because the people who spoke to them believed they would handle the story with fairness and sensitivity. It's reporters like Katie and Britt and experienced editors like George Dorman, Claire Noland, Emma Spann, Paul Fichtenbaum, who make The Athletic uniquely equipped to tackle such stories. Now, I'm not quite sure about this, but I don't believe there has ever been a larger baseball writing staff at any outlet. The Sporting News reported on every team back in the day, I remember that, and Baseball America does today, but that was with part-time correspondents, not full-time reporters. The Athletic is capable of aggressively pursuing stories of all kinds. We've done it, and we're going to continue to do so. In this particular arena, we aren't simply focusing on the Mets, just as we didn't only focus on the Astros when reporting on sign stealing. We also wrote about how Callaway's behavior went undetected for so long with the Indians. But remember, as with sign stealing, we are reporting, not simply publishing rumors or suspicions. Investigative pieces require greater rigor than, say, breaking the news of a free agent signing. And even with anonymous sources, we take great pains to independently corroborate information and not only through conversation. We look for documents, for text, emails, anything that offers confirmation. It takes work. It takes time. The standards are really high. Now, one last note on the timing. Good reporters do not hold back on news. Quite the contrary. They live in constant fear someone will beat them to a story. And yet, on stories like this, you cannot rush. You have to give each story the care it deserves. We published Friday because that is when we were ready to publish. We're proud of this story. If you haven't read it, we hope you will soon. Tim, that's all I got on that. Let's get to the mailbag. All right. I think you pretty much summed it up, and I think you answered a lot of questions that people had. Let's move on to the mailbag. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. 
All right, remember, you can be part of the show. Get your questions into Ken. There's two ways to do it. You can use the voicemail line. We prefer that because then we get to actually hear your voice. 646-543-7072. If you don't want to speak to the voicemail, you can also send us an email. Show at gmail.com. We talked about the Dodgers off the top of the show, Ken. So that's where we're going to start the mailbag. A question about how good this team really is. Hey, Kenny, are the uh, current Dodgers as constituted better than the 90s Braves? Interesting question, but I'll tell you this. The Dodgers have a ways to go yet. Remember, the Braves won 14 straight division titles from 1991 to 2005. Also, the 1995 World Series. There was only one World Series triumph in there, I know. The Dodgers have won eight straight division titles. That's six fewer than the Braves did consecutively. Now, each straight's pretty good. And they also won the World Series last year, albeit in the shortened season. But for the Dodgers to start looking at that comparison validly, they'd have to win a few more division titles in a row. And keep in mind, they're off to a brilliant start. 13-2, entering Sunday's play. They look great in every aspect of the game. They've been doing this without Bellinger, even without Joe Kelly, Tony Gonsolin. Gratterall's just coming back. They look almost invincible. But let's hold off anointing them as the 1990s Braves until they, one, win more division titles in a row, and two, win another World Series. And it's interesting. We're going to hear some best team ever talk around the Dodgers. In fact, we're already hearing it. Bill Plaschke of the LA Times, that great columnist, wrote before the season started, they might be the best team ever. Now, these are bold statements by Bill. And I remember 2011, the Boston Herald, front page. Red Sox had just acquired Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford. Best team ever? Well, they were not only the best, not the best team ever. They started 2-10. They entered September, or at one point in September, September 3rd to be precise, had a nine-game lead over the Rays for the wild-card spot, and then they lost 18 of 24 to become the first team to hold a nine-game lead in September and fail to make the playoffs. Don't think they were the best team ever. So we've got to let this play out. The Dodgers look unbelievable. I completely agree with that, but let's let the season breathe. It is uh, interesting how quickly the narrative can change, though. Before the last World Series, it was always this disappointing Dodgers team that always wins the division but never wins the World Series. They win the World Series in a 60-game season, and now maybe they're the best ever. <laughs> they got to win a World Series in a 162-game season first, I think. All right, next question up is from email. It's from Jared Worley. Uh, he's a White Sox fan with Michael Kopech. Having been away from baseball since September 2018, how shocking is it to see him bounce back the way he has? He seems electric on the mound. Seems like the team is only biding time until they place him back into the rotation. Do you think he takes a rotation spot post-All-Star break? And who would he replace? Cease, Rodon? Jared, in fact, he made his first start Sunday. And his story is tremendous. You're absolutely right. This is a guy who was the 33rd overall pick in 2014. White Sox acquired him in the Chris Sale trade, and what happened? Tommy John surgery in September 2018. That's why he was out all of 19, and with no minor league season in 20, that's why his layoff has been so long. But in his first few appearances, seven and two-thirds innings of relief, 13 strikeouts, nearly two per inning. He is brilliant, and there's no doubt about it. The talent is there. The plan to put him into the rotation was not supposed to go into effect this quickly, of course. They had the injury to 
Lance Lynn, strain right trapezius. He goes on the injured list on Sunday. They still have Giolito and Keuchel and Rodon and Cease. And if Kopech can handle it, they'll keep him in there for a little bit. They can also turn to other options. As we've talked about all season already, teams are going to need more than five starters. So Kopech does figure in at some place. I don't believe it's in place of a Dylan Cease, but it's more like in this kind of situation where you have an injury and there is a need for a starting pitcher. So this actual need arose from the doubleheader. Lynn pitched just last night. I'm sorry, Saturday night. But at the same time, he's going to be there, Kopech. He's going to be there. He's going to be a force as long as he stays healthy. He's an amazing talent. I love watching him pitch. And you have a lot to look forward to with him on the club. We talked about expansion on last week's show, and that opened up some questions about it, going a little deeper into the topic. Hi, my name is Tim Daniel. I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. Ken, in the last podcast, you mentioned the expansion being inevitable and it being better for scheduling. Could this be something where interleague play goes back to being a certain part of the season instead of every weekend? Thank you. Yes. If baseball goes to 32 teams, and they're a good bit away from that, then because of the number in each league, if they keep the two leagues, and there's no guarantee they would do that, but in theory, with 16 teams in each league and even number, you would no longer require an interleague series going on at every moment of the season. How they would handle that at that point, I don't know. And there has been some talk, and Jason Stark's written quite a bit about this, of abandoning the leagues. Once you have the universal DH, which presumably will come in time and before expansion, you wouldn't really need the distinction for the two leagues anymore. And if you have that, then there really is no interleague play. It's one big major league baseball. If you had the two leagues, perhaps you could do it the way it used to be in clusters throughout the season. I'm not sure. A lot of this is to be determined. And we're still not even close to talking about it seriously. With expansion, Commissioner Manfred's position has been consistently, he wants the Oakland and Tampa Bay situations, the ballpark situations, to be resolved before they proceed. And those situations still are not resolved to the satisfaction of the clubs or the league. One more question about expansion. Ken, this is Reggie from Austin, Texas. I actually have a two-part CBA question. Curious if this CBA that's coming up might mandate expansion to 32 teams as they did with expansion to 28 in the 1990 agreement. And along those lines, will they perhaps uh, put back in a modification to more of a balanced schedule? Because now if you play anybody outside your division, and you lose games due to weather, you're either making them up in the other city or they're being canceled. Reggie, there's a lot to your questions. And first of all, I don't expect expansion would be mandated by a CBA. That decision belongs to the league. If I recall correctly, the most recent CBA has a provision in which It allows for the league to explore expansion, and ultimately the union would have to sign off on it, but almost certainly would sign off on it because it would create that many more jobs for the two teams involved. So the union would favor expansion. I fully expect that. It would not be a problem, not something that you need to address in the CBA. As for the geographic element, this is a really interesting point. In 2018, I interviewed the commissioner, and we talked about expansion, and 
he talked about a more geographically based alignment going forward if expansion took place. So what that means is Eastern teams play on Eastern teams more often, Western teams, Central teams, etc. How it would all play out, again, as with the previous question, sort of remains to be seen. And the real question, the one I think you're driving at, is, all right, do we have a balanced schedule or an unbalanced schedule in that particular instance, if we go more geographically aligned? It would seem if you're doing that, the purpose is to reduce travel and make it easier on the clubs, and that would certainly lead to an unbalanced schedule, kind of like we have now when teams are playing their division many more times than they're playing outside the division. Whether a balanced schedule makes more sense remains to be seen. The commissioner has indicated that going to a slightly more balanced schedule probably does make sense. But again, these are things that all have to be sorted out once they get there. And they're fair questions. They're good things to wonder about. You're thinking along the right lines. It's just there are no answers right now. All right, back to the email we go. Gary Steinmetz, he says, thanks for doing the show. It's great, and the insight is tremendous. Thank you very much for that. My question is, what do you think of Badu? Sure, he is on the rebuilding Tigers team, so there's no pressure, but not playing above high A ball and currently just having fun while making MLB pitching look easy. Where did he come from, and why did the Twins not protect him? Well, first of all, I love Badu. And second of all, when you say there's no pressure, that's selling the difficulty of playing the game short. And if you're in the major leagues, there's pressure every day. It doesn't matter how good your team is. Yes, it's a different kind of pressure when you're playing for the Dodgers, but Akil Badu is a player who was a Rule 5 draft pick. He's fighting to stay in the major leagues. So there's a lot of pressure. You're being tested every day. You're trying to remain one of the 750 or so best in the world. Now, his history is really interesting, and he was a guy that the Tigers selected in that Rule 5 draft for $50,000. This was last December. That's all it took, $50,000 to get a kill Badu. They had not been protected by the Twins on their 40-man roster, and the reasons for that are multiple. He had not played above high A. He had not played in a regular season game since May 2019 when he underwent Tommy John surgery, and the Twins are deep in young outfielders. Beyond the guys that they have up now, they've got Alex Kirilov, Trevor Larnach, Brett Rooker, who just, of course, got promoted. So when you're looking for 40-man spots, you've got a guy who hasn't played since May 2019, hasn't played in above the high A, I should say, and hadn't really impressed during his time in the minors, hadn't been this overwhelming offensive force, hadn't looked that good last year in the Instructional League. At that point, if you're the Twins, you're saying, okay, maybe he's a guy we leave unprotected and hope he slips through so we can keep him. Well, Badu was the 74th pick in the 2016 draft. He wasn't this unknown guy with known pedigree. And the Tigers took a shot. And it's the kind of shot that every rebuilding team should take. And right now, so far, it's early. It's paying off for them. Yeah, the Rule 5 draft has kind of lost its luster. You know, it used to be that the rules were a little different and teams couldn't protect guys as long and you had Josh Hamilton's and other great players who ended up switching but we haven't had that many of those it's usually relief pitchers and that sort of thing so it'd be great to see a guy like this get picked in the rule five draft stick with the club and and go on to greatness it'd be really neat and, and maybe bring more attention back to that rule five draft all right back to the voicemail we go good afternoon Ken Rosenthal thank you so much I'm here to talk about 
the new rules in baseball and why a few other simple measures were not taken. I have an idea of a 12-man pitching staff banning the shift and eliminating tablets, binders, paper files, etc. in the dugout during the game. In other words, when the test goes out, the notes do too. I believe the last of those measures would eliminate espionage, it would increase pace of play, and to borrow a term from the great Tom Verducci, it would make it less of a thought contest and more of a display of athleticism of the players on the field. Okay, 12-man pitching staff. The idea there is if you carry fewer pitchers, and maybe the number is 12, maybe it's even 13, although that would seemingly be very consistent with what we're doing now. If you go to fewer pitchers, then you have to use your starters longer. And that would be the idea, that the third time through the order thing, while meaningful, would be, at that point, kind of restrictive. If you're taking pitchers out on a, with a 12-man staff, you're having a problem. So there has been talk of that. It's an interesting thought for sure, and I would take a hard look at that if I was baseball. I do think, my opinion, is that the starting pitcher has to be re-emphasized. It's been a loss for the sport to see what has happened with the diminished innings, the limited pitch counts, use of openers, star starting pitchers, the guys like Max Scherzer, the Aces, DeGrom. Those are pitchers, people that fans come to see. They should be enhancing those guys or at least making them more prominent again than reducing the number of pitchers capable of attaining such heights. Banning the shift, well, that's one of those things that's currently under experimentation in the Atlantic League. The idea is ultimately to force defenses to play two defenders on each side of the bag and perhaps not in the outfield, perhaps on the dirt. There are all kinds of ways to do this. Baseball is heading in that direction, I believe. There's no question about that. A lot of owners seem to want it. And while a lot of statistically-minded writers and fans think it's absurd that teams should be able to put the best defense on the field that they can and try to win that way using all the information available to them, I sort of believe and lean toward the side that it would create more offense. It would lead to more offense, or at least it wouldn't be so restrictive on certain left-handed hitters, for example. So that's one thing that I think we will see in the future. And then the last thing you mentioned, taking all the tech out of the dugouts. And to some degree, we had that last year. And if you remember, a lot of players complained about it. J.D. Martinez, most prominently, Javier Baez, even Max Scherzer. They all said, hey, we're used to our video. We like to look at it during games, like to check our at-bats, check what's going on. And to take that away from players now, one, they would object. Two, it would be counterproductive. It is a tool video that players use to be or to make themselves better, to help them in the course of the game. Now, it can get carried away. We all know that. And certainly, it led to sign stealing, illegal sign stealing. And that's been addressed by the way that they're now delaying the video and blocking out catcher signs, all of those things. So I don't believe it's going to happen that the video and the in-game tech gets banned. I don't know that we need any more of it. And to some degree, last year, a number of managers said, hey, this was kind of nice to have the guys not running back and looking at the video and talking to the game with each other. That has been lost. It shouldn't be lost. And my hope would be that there's some balance there so the players could do both. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Lots of questions about the rules this week. Here's one more. This is our last voicemail. I want to talk about the automated strike zone. Uh, one reason why I'd be against it because it would be taking skill out of the game. You're talking about the way a catcher receives a ball now is a huge skill aspect, and I don't think that rules should legislate skill, taking, removing skill from the game. Now, if it does happen, also, you're really going to have to shrink the strike zone because all those little pitches, if they just nip the corner, even if they're caught wrong or crossed up, those are still strikes. And I think you'll actually see hitters start to complain more about those pitches that are just unhittable. Wow, there's a lot to that question. And the strike zone is a subject of intense debate the automated strike zone, robo-umps, that's also a subject of intense debate. And first off, until that system is perfected and you feel really comfortable using it, adjusting heights of different hitters and doing all the things you will need to do to make sure that strike zone is precise, more precise than a human umpire, then we cannot even have that. And I, we're getting closer to it is what the league keeps saying, but it's not something I'm necessarily looking forward to. I like the human element, and I know some umpires are better than others, and some drive fans crazy, but to me, that's still part of the game. Now, one thing you mentioned with framing, and that's what you're talking about with catchers making certain pitches look better and get called strikes on them because they're skilled at it. It isn't a skill that teams measure. It is a skill that teams reward catchers for in the current game, and yet... In a way, I don't know that it should be that kind of thing. And you would like to see a uniform strike zone so that a catcher could not have that kind of advantage. And certain umpires could not be, for lack of a better term, deceived by a good catcher. So, yes, framing is a skill and a lot of catchers work really hard at it and a lot of them are really good at it. But a uniform strike zone would probably be better for the game. That's my opinion. Now, the strike zone itself, in terms of its size, that is constantly a source of debate. We're not going to see a bigger strike zone. That's just going to lead to more pitchers counts, more strikeouts. A smaller strike zone probably could lead to more walk, but more walks. But there is some talk and some validity, perhaps, to the idea of shrinking the zone top to bottom. Then pitchers would need to come into the zone more, throw more fastballs, pitch with more command instead of velocity, and you might have something there when you're looking to increase offense. That's the whole goal in many of these discussions that we're having right now. All right, one more question. It comes from email. It's from Jorge. He says, with with how much players are being utilized at multiple positions throughout a season, how would you feel about having a utility gold glove award added? For example, a player would have to play 20 innings at three-plus positions to qualify. Also, who would be your favorites to win those gold gloves right now? Jorge, I love this idea. Absolutely love it. And as teams use players in more versatile ways, and find players to fit the kinds of roles that you're describing, it is something that certainly is worthy of discussion because there are players who will never win a gold glove at one position because they don't play one position. So 
You ask me which guys right now would be prime candidates for this award, I'll give you one in each league. And actually, both played for the same team last year, the world champion Dodgers. Kike Hernandez. Here's a classic case. He's with the Red Sox now. He signed with the Red Sox with the idea of playing second base. But the manager, Alex Cora, likes him so much in center field that so far he's played more center field than any other position. Kike can move between both. He can play a number of positions, and he is really skilled defensively at virtually all of them. He's shown in the playoffs last year and just a brilliant player in that regard. His former teammate, Chris Taylor, he already, in this season, has started at five different positions, all three in the outfield, second base, and shortstop. He is a good to above-average defender at all of those positions, and he's the kind of guy that you would see, I believe, winning this award. And one other thought, the NBA has a sixth man award, right? It's the same kind of idea. A sixth man in the NBA is sort of a utility player. This would be a great way to honor guys like Kike Hernandez and Chris Taylor who bounce all over the field and contribute to their team in innumerable ways, but not necessarily at one position. All right. Great questions this week. Thanks for getting them in. If you want to be part of the show next week, again, the voicemail line is 646-543-7072. The email is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Ken, another week of baseball ahead. Where are you heading? I've got Nationals at Mets this Saturday, and I'm excited about that. I want to see the Nationals play. I haven't seen them this year. They've had some struggles. The Mets, obviously, are an exciting team, and they are a very interesting team, to say the least, whether DeGrom is pitching or not. So that's where I'll be at City Field on site for this one. All right. It'll be fun. It'll be another fun week. We'll be back with you next Monday with this show, but make sure you tune into the Athletic Baseball Show all week long. And also, if you want to read some of Ken's great work, we talked about Brittany and Katie Strang, their great work this week on the Mets. You can join The Athletic right now for just three ninety nine a month. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Uh, Jason Stark and Doug Glanville will be with you tomorrow on Starkville. They're going to be joined by Sarah Langs. That should be a lot of fun teaming up Jason and Sarah. It's like the ultimate baseball oddities episode. On Thursday, it's Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. And then Friday, Keith Law and Derek Van Riper. For Ken Rosenthal, I'm Tim McMaster. Have a great week. 